0: This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Just a little more than an hour before the moment that this podcast uh, was uh, recorded, Claudine Gay resigned as president of Harvard University. One of the issues surrounding her presidency has been accusations of plagiarism in her dissertation and subsequent scholarly writing. I don't want to go into that issue today. I don't want to discuss whether the charges are accurate or fair or politically motivated or whatever, but I would like to explore uh, the issue of plagiarism and academic research more, more broadly. And to discuss this topic, I'm very pleased to have with me today the Harvard University historian, James Hankins. He's the author of a major piece of scholarship published by Harvard University Press, which is entitled political meritocracy in Renaissance Italy. So you can see he's a historian of uh, the Middle Ages and the Renaissance uh, eras, and uh, all of that is in some ways relevant to our discussion, but I'm especially pleased that he's joining us today because he wrote an op-ed that appeared in the Wall Street Journal which is entitled uh, Claudine Gay and Why Academic Honesty Matters. So, Jim, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange.
1: It's a pleasure. And I might say that I'm a reader of education next, so I'm familiar with the work of your, of your group. All right.
0: Well, thank you. We, we uh, appreciate having uh, people of your stature uh, reading the journal. So let's start with that headline, though, in the Wall Street Journal about academic honesty matters. We now know that it does matter, but why does it matter? What's, what is the reason why people care a lot about plagiarism? That is to say, uh, copying the work of others without uh, making it clear that you've done so.
1: Well, the point I was trying to make in the article was that the research university exists inside an ethical framework uh, which is tied to a structure of incentives Uh, and you cannot really conduct modern research scientific or scholarly research without preserving that that frame that ethical frame and what that consists of uh, in large part is rewarding those who have made discoveries in proportion to their merit Uh, and to the importance of the discovery. And also um, making sure that people uh, get credit for what they've done and not take credit for things they haven't done. Uh, And that's important because scientific research, you know, is funded uh, by many institutions, not just the university itself. Uh, But I have in my life uh, uh, applied for many fellowships fellowships, time off, uh, and they're always predicated on my my, um, research profile, on on, uh, the quality and quantity of my research. And this is true for anybody who applies for anything inside the academic world, be it a job or a fellowship or time off or prizes or awards, they're all based on the idea of individual merit. So, um, and this is one reason why the university, in modern times, has always been extremely ferocious in trying to suppress plagiarism, uh, and we do it most ferociously for our for our um, our own students and uh, and uh, graduate students, uh, but it should apply to everyone in the university and in a way it's more important for it to apply to the leaders of the university who have to set an example
0: yeah as it's always been the case though. i mean it it seems i've i've seen a lot of manuscripts that i've been told were copied by monks of earlier manuscripts and in many ways we owe a debt to these monks who copied the works of the ancients and without their copying we wouldn't have uh, access to the wisdom of those who wrote in the distant past. So isn't the isn't isn't wasn't there just a lot of virtue in 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 the uh in the fact that people were really good at copying and and wasn't that actually a very honored uh scholarly practice for for many centuries.
1: Yes indeed. I, I used to be the um director of undergraduate studies in the history department, I I once had a plagiarism case, and the witness was my colleague, uh, Ernst Badian, who was a very famous ancient historian, but also someone who understood very well pre-modern understandings of of where academic credit should go. And he absolutely protested against the plagiarism proceeding on exactly the grounds you just mentioned, (laughs) saying that you know, well, if the ancients did it, it's okay for us to do it as well. And didn't I know that ancient, ancient historians constantly copied from each other and they didn't put quotation marks? Well, this is all very true. Uh, in the article, I talked about the medieval university and its understanding of, uh, of intellectual originality, which was about essentially the, um, the use of authorities. Uh, and they did not value, uh, I shouldn't say they don't value original thought, there are plenty of original thinkers in Middle Ages, but they they always put their, uh, they always uh, understood that their job was to um, interpret authorities.
0: So when you say authority, I know you know what that means, but for our listeners, can you sort of explain, you know, I guess Augustine was, uh, was an authority, so the ancient... Uh, uh, scholars who were had for generations been assumed to have discerned the truth. These were the people who were regarded as the authorities, uh, or do I have that right?
1: Yes, that's correct. The, the, there's, uh, in the medieval university, there's civil law and canon law. And the civil law, uh, the authorities of the civil law are basically um, jurisprudence, you know, uh, uh, jurists of previous generations who had been regarded as having successfully resolved cases with wisdom and fairness, and then there were the there were the decrees of emperors, and in the canon law, the law of the church, they had wise statements intentiae, uh, which were decisional statements taken from the works of of Christian authors, usually church fathers or councils. So those were uh, th- those were uh, those were canons, and then there were decrees of the pope, and they were also considered to be authoritative. So the job of the of the medieval uh, interpreter, medieval professor, was to harmonize all of these uh, sententiae and come up with a decision that was fair. And this is still done to some extent in law schools. Law schools are, in, in a way, more medieval than the rest of the university. But my point in the article was that we don't do this anymore, or it's, we don't do only this anymore. We still read texts and interpret them, and we still respect and 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 uh, admire them, maybe not as much as we did before. Uh, but uh, the, the research project of the modern university uh, is something that's quite recent, at least for me as a medievalist. It's recent, meaning it's since the 17th century. <laughs> My colleagues all think recent start in the Second World War. I, th- I think recent starts recent starts with the Protestant Reformation. But anyway, there, there is a different uh, ethos, a different, as to say, ethical structure that surrounds the modern research university, which has to be respected if the university is going to retain its it's it's uh, it's prestige.
0: Well, is there any moment in time when uh, there was a sensational pl- case of plagiarism which really established that uh, rule in the modern university? Can we can we pinpoint this or a time that uh, this takes place?
1: Well, there have been numerous controversies about who gets credit for what. Um, I'm not sure, it's not usually uh, couched as Platonism. It's usually people are talking about, you know, it's not talking about copying passages from other people. There are plenty of examples, obviously, but I think what gets more attention is the question of who did what, right? Who invented what? And the famous case, I guess, in the 17th century was calculus, because both Newton and Leibniz claimed to be the inventors of calculus. And uh, and that perhaps was not so important, as, as as credit would be today. But there there are many uh, uh, cases where people have contested um, whether who, where the ideas come from, and it is important in the sense that the the individuals and the institutions they represent gain prestige, and if they're stealing prestige from other institutions. Uh, then uh, they're getting, you know, as they say in the military, it's stolen honor. They are uh, they are taking credit for somebody else. But also, you know, if you are uh, taking credit for someone else's uh, uh, someone else's achievements, you're going to get graduate students. You're going to get honors. You're going to get prizes. And if those turn out to be fake, I mean, your achievements turn out to be fake, uh, then an awful lot of resources have been have been wasted. And a lot of individuals who hope to study with a, a person of genius, or at least high, high competence, uh, are uh, have, been, have been diluted.
0: Well, haven't some things begun to change, uh, Jim, in this regard? Uh, we now have lots of people working together on research teams. I sometimes see 25 names on an article and often see four or five names on an article. So there's a, always been this Tendency in the past that some individual was the great, you know, contributor, whether it was Leibniz or somebody else, but it now you know there's so many hands in the in the in, engaged in the same enterprise that maybe the day of plagiarism is is gone.
1: Well, I don't agree, I think that uh, even if you have many co Uh, Most times, those co-authors represent a laboratory or they represent a research group, which again is uh, seeking seeking funds and seeking uh, prestige. And if they are uh, that whole group, maybe it's difficult to to pinpoint who committed the plagiarism. I'm pretty sure that the individual research group, if there is that kind of plagiarism, uh, knows exactly who's responsible. Uh, and they will work to correct it. the question of, of theft of ideas, that's more difficult to pin down. Um, in, in a way uh, the um, I think the age of plagiarism may be uh, with us all the more just because of the resources that exist to identify plagiarism. We saw in the case of our president that you know the Washington free Beacon was out there. Uh, running AI programs to to isolate passages that seem to be taken from other people's writings. Um, so that kind of te- technology exists that will expose uh, probably more and more cases of plagiarism.
0: One person, Jim, uh, uh, wrote a, I think it was in the New York Times, there was a letter to the editor said that, well, look, at, we don't know that there haven't been many presidents of Harvard University who have copied uh, material by that have been written by others? Uh, maybe it's only because of this new technology that we're now identifying this case, and so we shouldn't maybe make such a big deal out of this just because we have the new technology. When it could have been a widespread practice, what do you think of that argument?
1: Not much. <laughs> I think uh, I think we have to. Um deal with each case as it happens. I, I personally doubt that people like Derek Bach or or, um, or, Frank, or some of the other recent presidents, Neil Rudenstein, were plagiarists, extremely unlikely to me. Uh, but I think if that were to be exposed, then that should be dealt with. But the idea that you wouldn't pay attention to plagiarism because others did it, you know, everyone's doing it, so therefore we have to drop all of our moral standards that to me is not a sound argument. Yeah.
0: Well, now, how about chat GBT? I mean, we've been talking a lot about plagiarism in the halls around uh, Harvard this past year just because uh, it's so easy now to answer a question on an exam, if it, if it's a take-home exam, or to write a paper. If it's a take-home paper, and all you have to do is ask this, this artificial intelligence to do the work for you and present that it's your own is this is this is this uh is this a, a major threat to the uh, academic enterprise
1: well i don't think so i think that originality and literary style exist at a very high level which gpt basically tells you what has already been said and the academy values, or should uh, research universities should value originality. Uh, in military history, we talk about defense and offense, and the pattern is, for offensive techniques to triumph for short periods of time, and then to be, uh, then to be, uh, overcome by defensive techniques, by fortifications or, what have you. And I think that applies to this sort of situation as well, that chat GPT represents a great advantage, temporary advantage for would-be plagiarizers, Uh, but they will soon lose their advantage. There are already, in fact, um, countermeasures that have been taken inside the university to um, identify chat GPT. Well that's encouraging
0: Jim but I must tell you about a case of uh, plagiarism that's uh, happened to me this year uh my teaching fellows uh, said well look at the paper that this student has written half the paper seems to have been written by chat and we've used a detector to to look to confirm our suspicions and the and this in this uh, this um, program was said yes this was probably written by Chibi we're eighty uh, percent sure of that and uh, and they said you know it just doesn't have uh, the specificity that's required because they were the, the paper was on a contemporary situation and it didn't. It didn't have all the specifics that you you need that all the other papers in the class had on, on discussing the contemporary situation. So, so they they said, "What what should we do?" And I said, "Well, we should turn it over to the administrative board at, at Harvard and get their opinion on this." And we were told then from that office, "Well, actually, you know, we can't say that this is a case of plagiarism on the basis of mm-hmm. what you just told us." So um I, I don't think that you can um uh that we would that we would uh, support you in this regard so yep. um what, <laughs> so I, I I I'm worried that if if, if that's going to be the policy at the administrative level whether or not uh we really um have a defense against this uh practice
1: well it's important to have administrative. Be- to be backed up by the administration when you have these cases. As I said, I was uh, the head tutor or director of undergraduate studies, as we now say, in the 1990s for eight years in the history department. And um, it, turned, it it when we had uh, plagiarism cases brought in, not that we had them several a year, uh, they were an administrative nightmare. You, know, you didn't want to deal with all of the all of the sort of procedural uh, hoops that you had to jump through in order to make a case stick and a lot of my teachers who worked under me said look just give them a d and say right at the bottom of the page unoriginal don't go through the whole process of cuz of prosecuting a plagiarism cuz it can be very time-consuming and also expensive. And in one case, I remember a father called me up and his son had been accused of plagiarism. And he said he's going to hire the best lawyer in the country and he was going to go after me. and He's going to go after my teachers and he's going to make life miserable for me. No lawfare, basically. Uh, And uh, that made me (laughs) more determined to take the... (laughs) It was an open and shut case. But it made me more determined to, to... to, to nail the guy uh, but so it was kind of but it, it, you can see that uh, it's, it's the procedure in part is is what uh is even in that date was causing uh, a reluctance to prosecute the stuff and that but that is a technical problem a managerial problem which i think can be overcome uh it doesn't seem to me uh, something that's going to break the institution or break the standards or originality that we that we have in the academy well you know stanford
0: university under uh, went a uh, pretty dramatic uh, experience uh, earlier this year the president of stanford uh, resigned on the grounds that uh, well the charges were made uh in in the stanford uh, uh undergraduate newspaper uh, they, the charges were made that uh, he had uh, relied upon fraudulent data for several of his papers. Now, uh, he, initially, he said that uh, this was a bunch of lies and uh, so forth. Uh, but eventually, he agreed to uh, modify and retract uh, what had been said in those papers. And then eventually, he had to resign. So are we going to see more sensational cases like this develop as we have better and better technology to detect uh, fraudulent uh relying on fraudulent uh, data or or copying other material
1: well i'm not a prophet uh, but i would say that i think that university uh, governance bodies such as our corporation are going to have to be much more careful in the future about choosing officers of the university and i think that the case of claudine uh, gay and the stanford president are going to make that very much a a a a, a requirement that every every uh high officer of the university is going to get a careful much more careful vetting than they have had in the past so that you... would be good as far as i'm concerned
0: yeah so uh... What do you think Harvard should do in order to, uh, Harvard's been gone through a, a difficult time uh, this past year, the past six months. So what what do you think is the, the way forward?
1: Well, I think in the case of Claudine Gay, um, one of the reasons why he came to this point was that the university uh, governing bodies uh, we're undervaluing the requirements and the and the ethical framework of the research university, and overvaluing uh, a a kind of political activism and statements about uh, politics in the choice of presidents and other high officials. Uh, so I think that the university is going to have to recover its commitment to it, to research and it's and uh, in order to preserve its academic prestige and the value of, of its degrees. <clears throat> because we could, uh, you know, I'm an historian, and one of the things you learn in history is that things can collapse very quickly. Harvard has been the premier university in the country since the second world war and in many ways in the world since the second world war, but things can, can collapse and I would hate to see this wonderful university with its incredibly generous alumni and many, many distinguished people. losing prestige because of. of. Um, of short sighted actions from our governing boards, and I think the governing boards have to stop. Uh, trying to turn the university into a, a training school for political activism and stop trying to send out political messages in their choice of officers. I think they had really should be the next president of Harvard should be someone with a distinguished academic record, either in sciences or in scholarship. Well, so you mentioned
0: that universities have plummeted from pinnacles. Uh, we all, we tend to think in the United States that, you know, uh, things change very slowly, but maybe this is just a myopic view. Uh, we haven't seen a lot of change in the last uh, 25, 50 years, but maybe if you take a longer perspective, as you're capable of doing, Jim... Uh, Can you give us some examples of universities that have fallen pretty far from uh, the pinnacle they once had achieved?
1: Well, I'm going to contradict myself slightly because, in fact, there's what's called a first mover phenomenon in universities, that the oldest universities are still the leading universities. The University of Paris was founded in 1215. University of Bologna which is founded around 1190 they're still top universities um and so is Oxford so is Cambridge both founded in the uh, late 11th and tw- sorry late 12th and early 13th century um there are a lot of uh German universities which were founded in the 14th century that have gone up and down uh Harvard you know has has uh has you know, as a research university, it only has really existed since the early 20th century uh, it, it, uh, and only tried to be a dominant, a dominant university in the country since maybe the 1920s and 30s. Uh, and it wasn't at that point necessarily the top university. Uh, but there are universities uh, that have tried to make a run at the top and have fallen back. Uh, for example, uh, University of Texas at Austin uh, tried very hard in the 1970s. They threw a lot of money at the university and were buying up some really big names. Uh, and that seems to have uh, failed. They didn't they're still not in the top 10. Uh, so there is the first mover phenomenon, but uh, I'm more worried about the um, reputation of research universities, as a whole in this country uh, when they start taking sides in politics it means that the other side in politics automatically regards them as politically motivated and that's not a good thing i don't think it's true first of all i, I think that most of the research of my colleagues in uh, in the humanities social sciences and sciences is not politically motivated it might be the the, the, the ends the purposes might be shaped by political beliefs, but the research is almost all sound as far as i'm concerned so it doesn't deserve to lose esteem but if the university does become a partisan institution as it's heading for that uh then it's going to lose public support
0: well one of the things that that uh comes to mind in this regard is the role that students play in shaping the reputation of a university. And some of the events that have happened this year, but not just this year, uh, over over time, have had huge effects on, on universities and their images. Is that something that we see historically as well, that the, the, the character of a university, the perception of a university is driven as much by its, its students as by its
1: faculty? Well, in the really early history of universities, there weren't that many of them, and most of the people who went to university were entering the church or or the kingdom as as uh, officials, magistrates, bishops, that sort of thing. So they were they had to be respectable. They couldn't cause an uproar. Um, I'm not sure if I can. Uh, i can find examples of universities have really lost credibility because of the of the student revolts uh there are plenty of is that what you're talking about perhaps i'm not understanding what you're talking about people
0: well of course you know you've had uh, uh you've had uh intellectuals playing major roles in revolutionary activity since the french revolution and uh yeah uh, I don't know if that's university connected or 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 not. Uh, I'm sure you can you can uh, place this into a broader perspective that I cannot.
1: Well, I will say one thing, and this, this goes back to my point about the general reputation of universities in the public sphere, uh, that the universities were really intellectual leaders of Europe uh, from roughly uh, the time they emerged in the late, 12th century down to the 17th century. Then they got terribly involved in the wars of religion. And uh, there was a long period. Uh, and in England, for example, uh, the universities were loyal to the king at a time when uh, the Puritans were in charge. And uh, after a while, um, I, towards the end of the 17th century, the universities stopped being places where original thought research were conducted. And I think that that's true of British universities from roughly the late 17th century to the middle of the 19th century, universities simply were not very important in the intellectual life of Great Britain. Uh, If you wanted to have a discussion about physics, you went to the Royal Society. If you wanted to talk literature, you went to a coffee house in London uh, great literary works were not being done uh, come, come out, coming out of universities. Uh, when Gibbon, you know, Edward Gibbon, the great historian, went to Oxford, he was bored out of his mind. But it was so, it was so dull. Uh, they were simply training the next generation of, of vicars, and uh, it was not. These were not intellectually exciting places. And it ultimately goes back to this politicization of university in the 17th century religious wars. So it only recovered really in the middle of the 19th century when the German universities uh, started the the modern uh, movement towards research.
0: Well, I find that a fascinating uh, uh, story you just uh, related there because it really makes your basic point that when a university becomes too engaged in the polit- political conflicts of the day, which were in the past religious conflicts, and by the way, religious conflicts are often political conflicts in our day as well. We're not that much different from the 17th century as we would like to think we are. Uh, but So we should be all the more careful that we don't become sort of uh, a backwater. Uh, because we have become too one-sided in our perspectives.
1: No, I agree entirely. And, uh, of course, we saw already this just since October 6th uh, that getting political about about the Middle East has cost our university, um, I've heard an estimate of as much as a billion dollars in donations, present and future donations. So that's not good people think that harvard has a 50 billion dollar endowment we can do anything we want the the administrators can do anything we want but i I know from people who are who uh, understand the university finances that there is really not that much uh wiggle room and that there uh you know that we have difficulty um with the budget every single year and there there when i was on faculty council in the 90s there was a structural budget that took 10 years to get out of so universities can can really suffer and in their missions from uh, uh, the hostility of the public or at least some portion of the public
0: well let us hope that this is not going to happen to harvard university and let us hope that uh the university will find uh something positive in their current experience and that they shall emerge a stronger force for scientific inquiry and cultural um, understanding uh, as in the in the decade to come. So thank you very much, Jim, for joining me on the Education Exchange.
1: It's been my pleasure. Thank you.
0: I have been speaking with James Hankins, professor of history at Harvard University and author of Political Meritocracy in Renaissance Italy. He is also the author of an op-ed piece on the dangers to science of academic dishonesty. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the EducationX website every Monday at noon Eastern time.